Genesis 32:22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and their 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Yabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and the man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. It's so good to see you guys again. All righty. So one of the things, uh, first of all, I was honored and surprised when I got the email asking me to come back. Um, But that was really awesome. So I gave a sermon uh, title and text to Ken, and my wife said to me, Joe, you realize this is Mother's Day. Ugh. So, um, yeah, happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Let let me say at least this, right? Mother's Day, the Reformation actually uh, was the thing that brought the idea that motherhood is a holy calling, that it is a fantastic, wonderful thing that God uses to bless people, to to bring about his kingdom, his blessing to the world, starting with the family, through mothers, right? And so therefore, we we definitely want to honor all the mothers. In my personal uh, experience pastoring people, it's mothers often, when the family breaks down, it's the mothers that are the glue that are still holding it together. And it is amazing what some of the mothers do. On the other hand, this is also a day of incredible unhappiness for a lot of people. So we definitely want to acknowledge that and pray for those people that a thing that should have been a blessing too often becomes a curse, right? And so therefore, isn't that how sin works, right? It takes the most powerful, wonderful things and it uses it for terrible, terrible reasons. And so definitely we want to keep all of those in prayer. And so that's my mini sermon on, on Mother's Day, if you will. All right, can we pray and then we'll, we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for allowing me to come back and to be with these wonderful people who have shown me so much kindness. Um, they're, they're, they're going to be in a pastoral search for a, for a new pastor, and I pray that you bless them tremendously. And as we uh, enjoy... Uh, 
As we celebrate Mother's Day today, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless all the mothers in this place, that uh, you will uh, help them uh, understand their wonderful, holy calling uh, to this, one, uh, this, this awesome um, station that can bless so many people. And on the other hand, Lord, we lift up the people who they're hurting terribly for whatever reason because of this day. And I pray that your comfort would go out to them, that they will come to realize that ultimately our, our hope, our, our identity is not in motherhood and it's not our blessing is not in motherhood per se, it's in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help Mother's Day go back to being, I think, what you would want it to be, a day that helps us picture a little bit more about who our God is and what he does. That end of the day, at the end of the day, the Bible, uh, well, at the end, of, the Bible portrays you not just as father, but as mother. That, Lord, um, all the blessings and wonderfulness of motherhood is truly found in you. And I pray that you would help us all walk away with a prophetic picture of how wonderful and awesome you are in a way that really does give comfort and hope to all parties involved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. So I'm gonna start off with a terrible story, right? So when I was growing up, I grew up in a very violent and abusive home. And I grew up Roman Catholic. No offense against the Roman Catholics. I still have many wonderful friends there. But um, I was in sixth grade. I still remember this. And I went to confession, because that's what good Catholics do. And I spoke to the priest there. And eventually, he ferreted out of me. He was able to figure it out of me um, that there were some terrible things going on. So I told him the story. And he looked at me, and he's like, would you like me to come Talk to your father. And I was like, oh, father, thank you so much. Would you please come do that? So I went home that day thinking everything was going to be good. But instead, what had happened was when the priest came over, he ended up siding with my father <laughs> about with all the, you know, like apparently he told me your father has a lot of values that I share. And, uh, you know, so he went home and that really didn't, uh, it, when the priest left, that didn't really turn out for me that well that night, right? My father was deeply embarrassed that I had told anyone what was going on. And that was a terrible, terrible night, right? Um, you know, I don't know if everyone, how many people like have experiences with mine, but I think it's not that hard to understand that because of sin, life in this world is hard. It's, it's like you don't have to be Christian. You don't have to be religious or anything like that to understand that. Life in this world, it's baseline. It's hard. And this is why people do bad things in life. They do all sorts of hurtful things. When they lie, they cheat, they fight, they steal. And, and they do a lot of these things because they're simply trying to get by in a life that's too hard to live through nicely, right? And there are many ways that people fight through the hardship of life. Some are violent. They literally fight through life. Some are thieves. They steal what they believe is too hard to earn, or they cheat because they don't believe that anyone's going to show them grace. And Jacob's like this, right? So in the story, Jacob's name in Hebrew, it's actually a pun, 
right? Ya'akov in Hebrew means to grab the heel, but it also sounds like the Hebrew word for deceiver, liar, right? Both of these meanings describe Jacob. Whenever Jacob faces a problem or a hardship in life, he cheats his way through by lying and deceiving people. So Jacob was the younger of two brothers. So when his father Isaac was on his deathbed, Jacob tricked Isaac into giving him his brother's birthright inheritance, even though Jacob's not the oldest son. So in the passage we just read, Jacob is trying to come home after years of running away from his brother. And he believes that Esau, his brother, is still angry about losing the birthright. Jacob thinks Esau still wants to kill him. So again, Jacob, just like his name indicates, tries to manipulate his brother. And so first he sends gifts of cattle or slaves or money. And then he sends his family, hoping that Esau would not be angry anymore. Maybe Jacob thinks he can appeal to Esau's greed so that, Jake, uh, so that Esau won't want to kill him anymore. But each time Jacob sent another gift, Esau made no reply. And that made Jacob desperate. He just didn't know what to do. And it was then that God came as an angel and wrestled with him. And they wrestled all night into the next day. So this story, it highlights, this is so important, it highlights how God helps hopeless sinners change by giving them hope, right? Now, where did I pull that from? <laughs> no, it's there. This is, this, is, this is the gist of the sermon, right? I'm going to show you how God helps, uses this story to help us see how God uses hopeless sinners change by giving them hope. Okay, follow me here. Jacob is a deceiver. He lies his way through all of his problems, and he's always trying to cheat those around him so that he can get what he wants, and that's how Jacob fights in life. And Christianity, of course, is going to say that's a terrible way to live. It's sad, causes misery. But here's the main point I want you to get from this, that while it's true that living in this world is hard, this is a way, there's a way to overcome in this life without turning to sin. So as Christians, we are taught that our fight is not against flesh and blood. And because of that, we refuse to lie or to cheat or to murder to get by in this world. And the reason that we refuse to sin like that in other words, the reason that we can stop fighting in whatever form we use, even in a world that's always trying to beat us down, is because God fights for us, right? God fights for us. Listen, God fights for you, right? That's what God is trying to teach Jacob. All throughout his life, Jacob fights by lying. Again, even his name is the, sounds like the Hebrew word for liar. But God changes his name to Israel. Now, uh, wait, this is the first sermon that I have ever written in my life. I kid you not, this is the very first one. It was uh, my old pastor knew that I was going to go to seminary, so he forced me to sit down and practice sermonizing in front of him. This is the very first one I ever read. And in the very first commentary that I ever read is the Genesis commentary from James Boyce, who used to be the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, right? And this is where I got this section of the sermon from. So get this is what Boyce says. So in Hebrew, the name Israel 
is a compound word, right? Doghouse, you know what a compound word is, right? Made up of two words, El, which means God, and Sarah, which means to fight. So most people translate Israel to mean the one who fights with God. Isn't that, you know, that's how, that's how it's in most Bibles as well. But there's a problem. Boyce points out that there's a problem with this translation. Notice how El is at the end of Israel, right? It's at the end. So God is the subject of Sarah, which means to fight. God is the doer of the action. So the same pattern happens in Daniel. Daniel, Daniel, right? Daniel means God judges, right? Samuel, L's at the end. Samuel means God hears. So if we're going to be consistent, then Israel does not mean the one who fights with God. It's better understood God fights. God fights for you, right? So um, God changes Jacob's name, and in doing so, he's challenging Jacob's character. Jacob is no longer to be a liar or a cheater. Instead, he is to understand that God is his fighter. Jacob does not need to fight anymore. He doesn't need to deceive. He doesn't need to worry, because God is for him, and if God is for him, who could be against? God is a warrior, and the Lord is his name. And so for, for us as well, God fights for you. What are the ways that you're fighting? What kind of weapons are you using? Usually they're good things that we turn into terrible, terrible things in order to get our way, whether it's love, whether it's money, whether it's ambition. It's all these different things, right? And what happens is why? Because you're living in a world that's hard. You're not going to make it if you, you feel that's how you feel. And what God is saying is, put down your weapons because God fights for you. Take your weapons and beat them into plowshares because we're going to build a garden that's hospitable for all. Amen? Amen. So I used to be the youth pastor of a Korean church in New Jersey. And... Um, I remember when we were out to dinner with the senior pastor's son who had gone off and joined the Navy, right? And he had come back because he was on leave. And apparently, his enlistment was almost up. And during the course of dinner, he started sharing his anxiety about leaving the military. See, the military gave him a sense of belonging, that he was part of something larger than himself. And it also gave him a sense of camaraderie that every person who served next to him considered, them all, considered themselves a part of a brotherhood that would fight for each other. They would even give their lives for one another if necessary. And so this pastor's son, he asked me, how is he ever going to find such a thing again once he leaves the Navy, right? And it turns out he's not the only one. So when I checked out online, doing research relatively recently uh, for the sermon, I found that in 2019, the Navy's re-enlistment rate was 71%, right? The Army's was even higher at 82%. Go Army, beat Navy, right? <laughs> See, people re-enlist because they have found a sense of calling, purpose, and camaraderie that was so great, they're willing to forego the freedoms and comforts of civilian life. 
And it, by the way, and if that's the, the case, praise God, that's a great thing. It's not a bad thing. It's wonderful. I hope everyone finds those things in life. But don't you find it a bit disturbing that there are so many people who feel that they don't have that in this world, right? See, God is a warrior who fights for us. If God were a carpenter, his children would all be carpenters. You guys know how that works. In the ancient world, you follow the job of your parents, right? If God were a physician, all his children would be doctors. But in these passages, God is a warrior. So if anyone would be called his children, then we also are fighters, right? We're different kind of fighters. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Notice in the world, you turn on the television, we're fighting against each other when the Bible consistently wants to say no. It's a different fight that you gotta be a part of. Stop fighting with one another. And how do you fight this fight? Not with weapons of the world, but with plowshares. <laughs> and if there's a weapon that you use, it's the cross, right? Pick up your cross and let's go follow him. Now, for those who put our faith in Christ, we are now a family. But not just a family, we're a family of fighters. And what do you call a body of fighters? It's an army. It's an army. Okay, so here, follow me here, right? So I, I, I remember reading this in a book I read in seminary, right? They were talking about how, like, uh, um, how the church was expanding, like, towards Europe. And they were getting towards, like, Brit the Great Britain area. It's now called Britain, right? And so back then, I forget what it was called. But they're trying to get there. Everyone spoke Gaelic. And they couldn't pronounce the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, so it's like they were trying, the missionaries are trying to tell them, we are the ecclesia. And the, the best that the folks out there could manage was, it's right? They, they couldn't get the word out. They just couldn't pronounce the word. And so, so what happens is it finally, um, finally they came to this. Okay, so, it, you know, so you pronounce Bach, B-A-C-H, right? Bach at the end, right? So what happens is ecclesia, they're like, okay, how do you spell Bach? C-H. C-H-U-R-C-H. So ecclesia became church because they couldn't pronounce it. That's literally how the story came about. Now, what does ecclesia mean? It's translated church, but the better use of it is army. It means assembly. You see that, assembly, but it's better translated army. So you ever read in the Old Testament where it says, the Lord is the Lord of hosts. Host means army, the Lord of the armies of God. Now, so what that means then is ecclesia is the Greek translation in the Septuagint of the word hosts. So when God calls you to the church, we start with the call to worship, isn't it? God is assembling his bannermen, all the families in his kingdom, to come march beside him because we are going to war a war that's waged by the Prince of Peace, not with violence, but with love. You see the difference? And then how blessed are the soldiers that carry the good news, the feet of those who carry the good news, right? We're marching along with our Lord. Now, um, so, so what do we do here? This is an army. When you come to church, it's an army that God uses to bring justice to the earth, not by might, not by power, but by the spirit 
of the living God, right? An army that fights not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I often tell my church, I've gotten a lot of comfort from the idea that God loves me and cares for me because I'm his child. That is a proper view of the Bible. But eventually you need to stop looking at yourself like the three-year-old child whose parent comforts them whenever you're crying. That's true, that's still there, don't throw that out. But eventually you need to start seeing it as, no, we are maturing into adulthood spiritually. That's why we were all this talk in Hebrews about learning how to be mature. In James, it's there as well. Maturity is what we're looking for, spiritual maturity. And what happens then is, um, as spiritually mature people, what are we doing? We're following Christ as we pick up our cross, and we're following him as one's marching off to war. A war, again, that you win, not with the weapons of the world, but instead, it's, again, like, like all the different said, so the end result of that would be shalom. All right, shalom, the prince of peace. All right, here, one more, one more thing about shalom. So what does the gospel do? Think about this. You, you, ever, you ever been to, um, you, you ever like been to science class, right? And they have a bowl, they have a bowl, right? And you stick the water in the bowl, you put the plant in there, the snail in there, and the fish, right? It's an ecosystem. All that simply means is if the fish dies, what happens to the other two? They die as well. On the other side, if one of them starts to do their job better, so you know, the snail cleans up all the crud off the, uh, <laughs> off the bowl. The, the, the plant, like, oxygenates the water. And the fish, I forget what the fish does, right? But the, the point is, if the snail works harder at his job, the other two benefit, right? What is this called, this inter-ecosystem harmony? The Bible says the whole world, when God created the world, is one massive spiritual ecosystem, where one thing affects everything. If even one part of it dies off, that, that terrible effect reverberates throughout all creation. Right, see that? But when it does well, on the other hand, when one part does its job really, really well, the benefits reverberate again all throughout creation. And the Bible calls this inter-eco, spiritual ecosystem harmony, shalom. And this is what we're fighting for. We're fighting for a world where heaven and earth, instead of fighting against each other, because God lives in heaven, we live on earth, and we need to stop fighting with one another. And not just that, we also, on this earth, it's, what does the Bible say the earth is characterized? In Genesis 6, it was violence. And so what's happening is we need to find a way to get the world to stop being characterized by violence and instead be characterized by peace. And the Hebrew word for peace is... Yeah, go. You guys were taught well. <laughs> See that? And that's why Jesus is called the Prince of Shalom. And what he's doing is he's marshalling his armies, his bannermen, who not only just families, who bring aside all of our armies, collective armies together, in order to ironically wage war. He, the Bible uses an intentionally violent word. But the irony is the, the violence that should have fallen on us instead fell on him. And in doing so, in taking the violence upon himself, he enacts a kind of good news, 
where the king of peace, the prince of peace, has come. And now the violence is taken upon him and is replaced slowly but surely with the shalom of God. And what are you doing? What are you doing? And this is what needs to happen. Your charge then, according to this, would be, be the army of God. Put down your weapons. Put them down. Put them down. The, the animosity, the hurt, the hatred, all the ways that we use to fight. You don't need to fight anymore because God fights for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the, you are the God of all peace. And Lord, in, 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 as your children, you fill up with us up with a peace that transcends understanding, that, that somehow um, you, you take us who are characterized by violence and fighting, and you fill us with a spirit that is not militant, but rather cries out, Abba, Father. And I pray, Lord, that that will begin to characterize the church as well, that the church, unfortunately, has misunderstood its call to militancy. The church militant doesn't mean we pick up more weapons. It means we think of warfare completely different with the irony that was displayed in the Bible, of course, in Jesus, the greatest warrior of God, the true David, as he overcomes the true Goliath, does so by losing, does so by dying, does so by taking the violence onto himself. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to do the same as we pick up our cross and follow our Lord. I pray, Lord, that the end result would be the kind of shalom that not only glorifies you, but prophesies to the entire world why Jesus really should be king. Help us then, Lord, to understand that, that we as Israel, Jesus is the true Israel, and we are grafted into him that we would know that God fights for us. Help us, Lord, start there, and help us, Lord, end up with the world that we truly do fight for, not with weapons of the world, but with the plowshares that will help us understand the victory that Jesus had in the garden. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.